Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Group Text. We are continuing our discussions with medical professionals all about the topic at hand, coronavirus. Right now, I want to welcome someone I've known for a very long time, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Thank you, guys. Dr. Drew. Happy to be here. Well, I wish it was under better circumstances. God, yes. I wish so. Now, you have found yourself, which is no, you know, it was actually in the New York Times, kind of in the middle of a giant controversy. Yes, that was a hit hit piece that uh, did not reflect my opinions at all. Well, that's why I want you to clarify your opinion. Yeah. Here's my opinion, and it's been this way from, from the beginning. And by the way, before I do, let me clarify for you guys that story of the medically induced coma. Yes, please. Because it goes at the heart of my, one of my concerns. The press does not know how to report medical stories, and they are, in this case, inciting dangerous language that panics people. That's been my cry from the beginning, that they are going to hurt people with the language they use. All of us need to listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci. He is your North Star. You do what he tells you. I've been around that guy for 30 years, alongside of him in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. He knows what he's doing. We will be fine if you follow his recommendations. If you go beyond that, you don't have to necessarily, but okay, but that now we're into different territory. Let me tell you this, this medically induced coma reporting, for instance. When someone is on a medically induced coma, typically means high dose of barbiturates, phenobarbital, to calm the brain down, usually because of unrelenting seizures, and it causes a state of coma. Quick question. Yeah. Don't, when someone's on a respirator, that is the normal course of action, correct? Is to put them on propofol, which effectively puts them into a coma, but the propofol essentially reduces the misery of being on a ventilator and also improves lung compliance and oxygen delivery. So being in a, quote, medically induced coma is a, I suspect, a distortion of the facts. This is somebody on the usual sedation of ventilators and brought back out of it as his lungs have improved. So that's, you know, at least there was some good that came out of that story. Yeah, of course. Well, no, people are recovering. Young people like crazy. I mean, the people that have trouble are the very elderly. That's where the problem is. I mean, you got to remember, H1N1 routinely killed 40 to 60-year-olds. The last pandemic when it was in 2009. It infected 1 billion people, and it uh, killed half a million, primarily 40 to 60-year-olds. You've been warning people about the spread of disease long before this, especially with the homeless population. Yep. Yep, and right now they are at high, high risk. Now, I'm super impressed with the way Mayor Garcetti and Governor Newsom spoke yesterday. They are responding. They're doing things we've been asking for for years. And so they are clearly taking it very seriously. They, they still need a few more steps in order to really make a difference, but they are taking it very seriously, and I commend them for that. Can you explain a little bit about what is going on with the homeless population and what 
steps they are taking? So we have 150,000 homeless in California, 60,000 in Los Angeles. They are in highly concentrated environments. They're immunocompromised. They have no sanitation. This is an environment where this virus and in many other conditions, and by the way, influenza is flourishing down there. Don't forget that has killed 18,000 people also so far. And you also said typhus. Typhus broke out here, and that was the rat-borne illness, and that we knew that was coming just by the massive bloom of rats that we've had in Southern California. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, what I was warning people of was that what follows typhus is Ursinia, which is, you know, I know as plague, but looks like we're going to move past that because people are responding aggressively to moving homeless into environments where they can be cared for. The problem is the majority of homeless, even when motivated out of fear, are resistant and unwilling to go. So I do know how they should deal with that, but uh, Governor Newsom has not really factored that into the equation yet. It's, he's made it seem that everyone is going to orderly you know, stream out of the streets into these trailers and motels, and that's just not going to happen. So it's going to be a little more of a challenge. In the meantime, they are at very high risk. Doctor, do you feel like the virus has been overblown? Uh, I feel, no. I feel that Dr. Fauci has been very consistent in the rollout of his recommendations. The press has been inciting panic. That's what I've been saying from the beginning, that they needed to shut up, that the language they were using just this morning, I saw new cases soaring. No, the headline should be, just as we expected, cases are going to double as the backlog of testing comes in. The positivity rate is only 10%. This is good news. It does not look like the transmission rate is accelerating. That should be the headline, not rates are soaring. What is the average person supposed to think when they see that? By the same token, the politicians should not be using language like shelter in place. Shelter in place is a term reserved for an active shooter or a fire, and it's an instruction to barricade yourself in a room. No. The cry should be, the call-out should be, we need you to stay home if you possibly can, self-quarantine, come on, everybody, let's do this. Not shelter in place. The panic I'm seeing as a result of these excesses is going to, in the long run, be worse than the interventions and the virus itself. And this is the thing. When medical personnel make an intervention, we always weigh out the risk-benefits of it. We always do. The press is going on heedlessly, using language without contemplating the impact they're having. I've said it repeatedly. I will say it again. This is why, again, the New York Times story is such fake news on me. Anthony Fauci should be your North Star. Follow his directions. We'll be fine press needs to shut up for the most part and just report the facts. Do you think, though, as a society, I mean, and we're seeing this especially with all the spring breakers, we almost need to scare people well, that's, into that's, yeah, making well, the a, right decision? It's an interesting question. I, I would say that Dr. Fauci's uh, language is enough to scare people. <laughs> we it don't is, need to go I mean, beyond that. And, and that's it's an interesting argument that we need motivation, need people to follow suit. Uh, and, yeah, we do need to not frighten people, but get them to take it seriously. To induce panic, that is not helping. Well, clearly the spring breakers are not exactly panicking. That's over. Now, listen, think about it this way. That, that ended very quickly. I, I, we're all disgusted by that. They are now taking it seriously. They were in denial. There's nowhere for them to go now. They can't gather anywhere because there's nowhere to go. They all have gone home. That, that was a few days of excess of people with bad judgment who have now fallen in line. Because just this morning they were saying, uh, Florida, they're not even closing the beaches until Monday. People are off the beaches. My, my reporting I'm hearing is that they're off. They're out. Well, that's they, a good they, thing. I mean, having a college-age child who is climbing the walls 
it's hard to say, well, they're allowed to go. How do you get the message through? You've dealt with, you know, especially back like on Loveline, a, a younger population for years and years and years. How do we get them to understand the seriousness? Well, they are, for the most part. It's the ones that aren't that could cause us real trouble, right? The outliers are the ones that could be a vector for contagion. And what I would say is, hey, you, your generation has been lecturing me for the last couple of years about how you're so socially conscious and you're the social justice warriors for, for the future. What are you doing? This is your chance to really make a difference. I, I told my son this morning, I said, look, I'm going... I put myself on, on the record to go into the hospital if they expand their needs for internists and specialists. I'm, I'm going in. I'm going in, and I will be at very high risk, and you will not see me for two weeks because I will self-isolate at the other end of the house. That's how you step up when the society needs you. Your job, stay home. That's it. There you go. It's, a, it's the time. It's the time for you to put the action behind what you've been talking about for quite some time. Which is, a, by the way, which is a great piece of advice on how to talk to your teens and young adults. Put your money where your mouth is. It just doesn't seem, I, I hear both of you right. speaking, but Melissa, you and I have been living it. Cooper came home from college and he said that some of the um, airport staff were in hazmat suits. He said that was a little alarming. So in the moment while he was experiencing it and it was real to him, that registered. But once he got home, he was just like, why can't I get in the car and go see my friends? It was like a passing moment. And I feel like that may be happening with a lot of our young people. Well, it, it yeah, I'm hearing a lot of exactly that, which is why can't I have small social groups? And I would say, read the CDC guidelines. They do not tell you you can't go outside or can't congregate in small groups, provided there's not been exposure. So assess the risk of the circumstance help them understand that they are taking added risk by not self-quarantining to the extent that they can, because we've been advised to limit our activities, limit the out-of-home activities. But they've not said you cannot go out, and they've not said you can't socialize in small groups. But you must practice social distancing when you do. So, okay, but even in that small group, Dr. Drew, like now it's, you know, what is it, one in three? Or what? what's the rate now? What, what are they saying in terms of, you know, God forbid, you know, one person catches it in terms of spreading it. Is it just Oh, you're, 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 it's, it's highly contagious. That's why we're taking such extreme measures. As I started this phone call, the number of cases documented in the country of 350 million people was 9,200. I'm expecting it to be 20,000 by tomorrow because we're going to have this backlog of, of uh, testing coming in. And the testing has only been 10% positive. Yesterday it was 3% positive. Today it's 10% positive. So a lot of people with illness don't have coronavirus, and only 10% of those tested do have coronavirus. So assess the risk, be sensible, practice social distancing, don't panic. This is going to be, you know, you, you, <laughs> it's a little bit of a marathon we're running here, and we, these kids need to be able to make it through all this and keep, keep coaching them up to stay home as much as possible. But the recommendations in most, I mean, this is, if you're in New York City, you've got to stay home, right? It's different in different environments. It depends where you are. New York City is getting different direction than, say, someone who lives in Nebraska. So it right, depends right. where you are. Right. You also do a lot of work, and that's what you're known for, with addiction. Yeah. How vulnerable are people who are active in their alcoholism or their addiction 
that to me seems to be a very vulnerable, I hate to use the PPs in the world, population. They, they are, but it's, it's kind of in a mixed way, the way you wouldn't anticipate. Addicts are at their best in crises. That's why the genes for addiction have survived so many throughout human history, because in extreme circumstances, people with that gene or those constellation of genes do very well. And what I have seen is, man, they tend to get it together and step up at times like this. The vulnerable population are the people who are new in their recovery. They're very fragile, and we have, dis- we have dis- uh, dissembled the meetings. We have, we have told you, the people, that they can't have meetings of more than 10 people. So the meetings are more difficult to come by at a time when their fragility is the most. Plus, when you're new in recovery, you feel everything. And I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, everyone I'm coming in contact these days has lots of feelings because everything's on high alert. We are all uh, anxious, and a drug addict in early recovery is is uh, very fragile and very vulnerable. That's the group I worry about. Hmm. Do you recommend them doing, you know, Skype meetings? I mean, what would be your recommendation for this particular group because this is what you're known for? Right. So Skype meetings are being held uh Readily, they're easy to find. There's lots of them. A lot of people are stepping up and organizing those kinds of meetings. But I would encourage you, this is a group, again, we're always talking about risk-benefit analysis. What's the risk-reward of a fragile drug addict self-isolating? They could go back to using and die, or if they go out to a meeting, they could expose themselves to somebody. I would hope they could find a small meeting, five people say, that is the same five people every time, so you're not re-exposing yourself to new people. You practice social distancing. You do not touch. But there is added benefit to in-person kinds of interaction that that fragile group, let's say the first three months of recovery, even the first six months really, uh, may, may benefit and could be done real harm if they do not. So get on some telemedicine meetings immediately but see if you can find a small group somewhere that's meeting on a regular basis. Drew, I am always so grateful for all of your insight. Um, I'm so happy that you got a chance to clarify your position because this story has sort of taken on a life of its own. I know, it's bizarre. And I I think at one point I jumped into some rhetorical excess calling this language that the press uses a hoax. I did not mean, that's where I think I got in trouble, and that's where other people quoted me, who also distorted my meaning. Um, but that what I'm talking about is the hoax is the desire to cause panic and capture our eyes. That's what I mean. I don't mean, the vi- I don't mean anything about the illness. I don't mean anything about our response to the illness. I'm talking about the language the press uses and how heedless they are in the consequences of that. It's been reprehensible, frankly. And I, I really am gravely concerned about that, and I'm seeing it to this day. They are, I, I, you know, I made a big issue of the shelter-in-place thing, and God bless Eric Garcetti, our mayor in Los Angeles. He adjusted his language. He said, you're right, we shouldn't use that language, and he said it publicly. And I thought, yes, yes, sir, you, I am now a fan. Good, good well, leadership, so, sir. Let's, let's keep I, going. I'm so glad that you took the time to come and talk to us. You always have a platform here. And... Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you, and keep doing what you're doing, and kudos to you to putting yourself in the line of fire saying you are going to go in and actually work and help our health care providers. Actually, with Dr. Drew, I wouldn't expect anything else. He's so passionate about people and helping 
so it, it doesn't seem out of the norm. But it, it just, but, I, but, I, but let me just say, you know, the, the, that's, it's not out of the norm for my peers either. The, the American healthcare system and uh, physicians, they, they, they just do what they're supposed to do. They put themselves behind the needs of the patient. And, you know, whenever you see measurements of the U.S. healthcare system, our resiliency, our ability to get things done and flex and innovation, that's never part of the measurements. And nobody does this better than us. And it's living the Hippocratic Oath. And, and we, we, we will be fine. We're going to get this thing. We're, I don't mean we're going to contract it. I mean we're going to get it under control. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.